Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are wrapping up our three-part Old Testament series, which we've been calling Ancient Scrolls. We've done three different books that we've sort of taken a deep dive into, and today is the end of our last part of the last of our series, looking at the life of David. And we've been doing that because we feel like when we see such a breadth of life in scripture, we have so much detail about the life of this man and this king that we can see ourselves in different moments of his life and his lived experience. So we started out with the stories of his youth, that purity and innocence that led to such an amazing foundation of trust in the life of David towards the Lord. And we learned that time and time again, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. What an accolade. He had incredible success in everything he did. 1 Samuel 18, 14 tells us, in everything he did, he had great success. Ha <laughs> ha. I got that from somewhere. Because the Lord was with him. That was why. The Lord had anointed this young man for a certain purpose. And then we next saw a season of his life where King Saul became very jealous. And he started to uh, run after and try to kill uh, David, who had been anointed to be king but was not king yet. And that rage and that jealousy on the part of Saul led to David hiding out and fearing for his life in caves. And uh, we see here that his character is fully developed in the waiting, in the longing for the thing to come to pass that had been promised but was not yet true. In that silence and solitude, we saw a deepening of his intimacy with God. Last week, we looked at a season after that political strife had sort of come to a close. Uh, There was a season, yes, of battle and deception and murder, but suddenly they came to this mountaintop moment where David, along with the Ark of the Covenant, got to go into Jerusalem, and we saw a couple of themes in this mountaintop moment that show the foreshadowing of what we see later in Jesus, right? David's been anointed to king of both Judah and Israel, so we see reconciliation, He takes over Jerusalem, and we see him establishing a kingdom. These are foreshadows of what we hear from Jesus, right? And then he brings in the ark, which shows the presence of the Lord being in their midst. And when that's happening, that mountaintop moment, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And we saw that when his wife was embarrassed about this uh, non-normative behavior for a king, he responded and said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He's saying this is a mountaintop moment, the waiting, the wondering, and the work. It's all come to fruition. In this moment, I will be bold and expressive in my gratitude, unabashed adoration of God. As sort of this heightened moment, the arc in the whole story. But as I alluded to last week, that mountaintop moment does not last So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go ahead and spend some time reading through the story of the sort of crash and fall moment after that mountaintop moment in the life of David. We're really going to lean into the story and we're going to pause along the way to make some observations. So if you want to follow along, I encourage you to do so. You'll find this uh, section that we're going to read starting in page 247 of your pew Bibles. That's page 247. We're going to start in 2 Samuel 11, 1. 
And so you'll find it on 247. Okay, but I'm just quick, while you find your places, I'm gonna pray. Um, Lord, there's just so much here. I pray that you would just um, have your way with these words in the hearts of every individual in this room. I know you've had your way with them in my own heart this week. So thank you, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we honor your presence as we dive in to um, Holy Scriptures this morning. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to have some intentional um, uh, emphasis, but I'll explain in just a minute. Okay, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Urah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Okay. So in a little bit of a moment there, we learned a lot of things. Let's start out by observing what we do know and what we don't know from this passage. Number one, we know it is spring and that that customarily would be time when the kings should be off at war. The author is very clear. It is spring, the time when kings are off to war. King David stays in Jerusalem. We know this. We don't know why. Was he selfish? Was he lazy? Was he just not in the mood? Was he sick? We don't actually know, but the tone of the author indicates David is not where he's supposed to be at this season when kings should be off at war. We just don't know why, but we know something is not as it's supposed to be. What else do we know? We do know that Bathsheba is bathing after her menstrual cycle in an act of purification that was prescribed in the Torah, the law. This is not because a cycle is dirty or bad or sinful. It is because in the Torah, the law, any spilling of blood in any way, any spilling of a potential life, even if it wasn't an actual life, it was the potential for life required a, uh, a, purif a repurification process. Now, here's what we need to know. She was ritualistically unclean in a way that was so normative to the people in the Jewish culture that it was not a bad thing. It was just a, now it's time to become ritualistically clean again. This was something that would have been completely normative that every woman, 50% of this culture or more, I made up that statistic, I actually don't know the statistic, but like half of the culture, this was a regular, regular thing that needed to happen. By the way, there was a similar thing for the male version of spilling of life, but we are not gonna get into that. My point is, that the female situation was not a bad one. It was so normative. This was the ritual that just had to happen in the life of being in the law of the Lord. Okay, she was doing a very normative act. What we don't know is the, the roof thing. Like, I, we actually don't know. Was that normal or not? What, what time of day? We, we don't know. So we have to acknowledge what we don't know. Here's what we do know. David sees her. He wants her. He takes her. He can do this as king. The law would allow that, the law of a king, but not the law of the Lord. 
The law of the Lord was clear that adultery was a no-no, but the law of the king would allow him to do what he wants. So him doing this does not mean he should do it. It does not mean that he would have done it were her husband home. We don't know that, but we do know that he is the king and she has to obey. Here's what we don't know. Her thoughts on the matter. One of my wonderful, wonderful resources, um, there's this whole group um, of dictionaries of the, um, like the whole Bible in different sections. Oh my gosh, they're so good. If anybody, they're expensive though, I will share. If you have a term or something that comes up, like let me know, I'll give you way too much information. So good. This is talking about some women, including in this case, Bathsheba, and they say it really well. The text focuses on David and his blameworthy behavior. There is no way of knowing whether Bathsheba was a willing or reluctant party to the offense. Whether she even knew that her bathing was being watched, we do not know. David saw, he wanted, he took. Bathsheba's desires seem to be, have been irrelevant, and perhaps for that reason, they are not recorded. There is no indication whatsoever that this was a great love story or anything more than a one-off satisfaction of David's lust. So... We are not going to frame this as a love story. We are not going to frame this as a seduction story on her part. She's just not the one the author is focused on, okay? So I'm not like excusing or blaming or anything her. I'm saying the author wants us to look at David. So we're gonna look at David. He's the one we're focused on. And that is recorded as, I saw her, I want that, I'm king, I'm gonna have it. And so that's just making sure we all know what we know and what we do not know from that part. Let's go on. Observing it, we go, I'm picking up on verse six. So David sent that we just found out we're pregnant, okay? And oops, we do know that that we shouldn't be because the husband is at war. Okay, so David sent this word to Joab, his military commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. It's like a strange small talk moment to me. I don't know, like, let's just chat. I just brought you home from war, little small talk. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, I won't get into details, but bless you. Scholars agree that in ancient Hebrew, to wash your feet was a euphemism for intercourse. Sort of like when I was growing up, if you were at a restaurant and you needed to go to the bathroom, you would never say such a thing at the table. You would say, I'm going to powder my nose. I was 13, I did not carry powder for my nose. But that is what you said. Wash your feet said something else. This is agreed upon. The point is, Uriah, would think that the child was his. That is David's goal in sending him to wash his feet in his home. So Uriah left the palace. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So, da, da, da. so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Now, in a little bit, we're going to learn Uriah is one or was one of uh, David's 30 mighty men. This was like a special class of, a cast of battle warriors, right? So maybe he thought that this was a test of his character or something. We don't really know. But here's Uriah's response. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So we don't know why he is 
doing that. He just, he, we don't know if it's because he thinks he's being tested or just because he has such character. He would never do such a thing. Such a thing as exactly what David is doing, Uriah would never do. He would never do such a thing. So if we fast forward a little bit, I'm going to skip forward a few verses. David says, hey, stay a few more days. And David gets Uriah drunk, but he still doesn't go home. He sleeps on a mat among the servants. So after this has gone on for a few days in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the military commander, and he sent it with Uriah. I have to pause and count this among the atrocities of this story. Uriah unknowingly carried his own death warrant back to the military commander. Anyway, he sent it with Uriah. Uriah faithfully delivered it. I added that part. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Sure enough, Uriah is killed. Joab sends a report back with a messenger to tell of the battle, which they lost. And when Joab is telling the messenger how to deliver this bad news to David, he basically says, okay, and then David's anger might just flare up and he'll start asking questions like, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do it that way? I'm paraphrasing now. And so end the whole thing by saying, oh, BTW, Uriah is dead if, a, if he starts to get angry, right? And so David gets this message and indeed he says, yeah, we lost, didn't go so well, but by the way, Uriah is dead. And David sends a message back and be like, oh, it's okay. Tell Joab not to worry about it. Don't get disheartened, keep going. Everything's okay, not to worry. Not a normal response to hear that you've just lost a battle. So indeed, his anger does not flare up and we get the sense that he's okay with the whole loss because his personal agenda is taken care of. Uriah is dead. And so here is what we see if we back up at this story that we've just gone through, right? I see a snowball effect. We start with something that we don't know why, but we know is off, right? He's not at battle at the time that kings are at battle, be it selfishness, laziness. We don't know why, but the author is clear. He should have been there and he wasn't. So something was off in that first part. And we snowball a little further and we get to lust. And then we snowball and we get to a clear misuse of power because you may have that power as a king, but according to God's law, you should never use it for that purpose, which is snowball adultery, which leads to deception, which leads to murder and a general lack of integrity that I don't quite have a word for. We see a snowball going on. And in 1127, we read after Bathsheba's time of mourning for her husband was over, David had her brought to his house House, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This, in this moment, you guys, if we've been reading the story of David, this larger than life figure, this man after God's own heart, this amazing commander who all these things have been going right for, it's like if you're watching that movie and you are so in with that one character, you're just tracking with his or her story, and then they do that awful thing and you're like, no, you know better. You know that feeling in a movie when you're like, I'm on your side and you just whiffed. Like that is what you're feeling if you're in the nation of of Israel and you're reading this story about this larger than life figure, you know the momentum of this snowball. You know, oh, this was not okay. You know better. And so then the passage that Sam read today, Nathan as a prophet, a prophet is one sent by God speaking on behalf of God to a person, right? So Nathan is speaking on behalf of God and he goes to David to confront him that this has displeased the Lord. But rather than saying, David, you displeased the Lord. Nathan uses a parable. 
A parable, as we sometimes talk about in the New Testament, is a short, realistic story, fictional story, but realistic story, that tells a deeper spiritual truth. And so Nathan goes with this story about the rich man and the poor man, and you, we heard it. Uh, David is so outraged. That's awful. How could he do such a thing? And then Nathan says, it's you. And David realizes on his own through this parable that his actions have been grievous and he knows that he has done wrong. Nathan goes on then to say, as the voice of the Lord, he says, I gave you everything. Why did you kill Uriah and take his wife? Second Samuel 12, 9, we're on now page 248 if you're tracking along, says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? despise the word of the Lord. This sin against Uriah and Bathsheba is a sin against God. David knew better. This was a sin against God's own word. God's, not just his word as written in scripture, yes, but just his overall instructions, his heart for justice. The fact that these people were made in God's image. David was supposed to be a man after God's own heart, reflecting God's self to the people he was leading. And now this is the image of God that David is bearing. And it's not okay. You have sinned against God. And you knew that that was not okay. And so in 1213, David just sits there after receiving this conviction of the Holy Spirit through the voice of Nathan. And he says, I, I have sinned against the Lord. And I want to pause here a second and just point something out, you guys. When this conviction comes, David's response is he acknowledges it. He owns it. He recognizes he did it. He accepts that he did it. And as a separate point, I want to say this is a hugely important part in any path to reconciliation, be it between a human and God or between two humans. Accepting and recognizing the hurt and your own ownership in it is mandatory in a path to reconciliation. David speaks it, owns it, and knows, I have done this thing. And then if you're in your pew Bible, I encourage you to go to page 457. David pens this amazing psalm, this response where we just see how his, his heart posture really is after he's been um, confronted by Nathan and recognized, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm going to read portions. I encourage you to read all of it. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfaithful love, meaning not according to what I've done, but according to you, have mercy on me. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Going to verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Look at what he's doing. Those action verbs, he's asking the action to be on God's part. I can't do this without you, God. You need to create this in me. You need to renew this in me. I need your help. Going to 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is what I can give you. I am fractured and broken in my heart over the willingness or the awareness of what I have done. At this, we can kind of pause and be like, wait, hold on a second. God wants this broken heart as the gift, as the sacrifice? 
We have other psalms that say things like, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus himself, as he entered into his own ministry after his baptism, picked up the scroll of Isaiah and read as his own mission statement. I'll read here from Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We know God has come to bind up broken hearts, but what we have here is David willingly acknowledging that what he's giving before the Lord is a fractured and unwhole heart. This isn't just a sad heart. Think fractured heart an unwhole self that needs to be bound back together. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Here's what we're going to talk about in reflection of this story today. Somewhere along the line, I believe in the last hundreds and even thousands of years that Sam was referring to of our faith, somewhere along the way, confession and repentance have gotten a bad rap. Probably because they involve uncomfortable emotions. I I know I feel uncomfortable emotions when they come up. That's something that often we try to avoid. Maybe that's the reason, or maybe and, because I think that sometimes this concept has been forced or coerced upon us. This has been used as some kind of like forced uh, posture that we aren't doing on our own or something like this language can happen in an unauthentic way. I don't know what it is. I think it's some of those things. But anyway, here's what I want to propose to you as my, here's my thesis statement for the day. Between humans and God, repentance is one of the most astonishing, powerful, undeserved, free gifts of grace that we have access to in the solar verse, in all of time and all of space. Is there ever something as absolutely uncanny as the astonishing, powerful, undeserved gift of repentance that's handed to us? It's a gift. This is not something that should make us shy away and feel condemned or shame. This is a path to freedom, and I think that sometimes we can misunderstand that. So here's what we're going to do for a moment here. I want to do a quick couple of moments understanding repentance a little bit more, and then I want to go back to a few observations from the story in the life of David. I'm going to start us off here. Now, I need to start off by telling you guys, this book is like beautifully blowing my mind, but um, this is Alan Hirsch. His point is not to talk about um, individual repentance. Um, he really is getting to a very prophetic word for the church and culture today. If anyone wants to read along with me, like I'm just getting a little bit into it, I would love to chat about it as we go. Um, it's metanoia, which the word will be up here in a minute. Um, it's Alan Hirsch with Rob Kelly. But he starts with the individual concept in God's story of repentance. So let me just say a couple things quickly. There's actually no, in the ancient Hebrew, okay, I'm not as scattered as it looks right now. In the Old Testament, it was originally written in ancient Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek, okay? Um, in the ancient Hebrew of the Old Testament, there actually was not a direct word that we would now say repentance or repent. Instead, there were two words, uh, shuv and teshuva, which mean turn and return. Um, and both of those were used as an ongoing concept that when you needed to, 
you would turn from something and go toward another. So return to God or turn from something and pick a new direction. So that was the concept in the Old Testament time and time again. So he says this, the people regularly lost their way and needed constantly to return or turn to maintain their relationship with Yahweh. This was a built-in part of covenant relationship as normative as doing a cleansing every month that is just part of what you do as a woman in ancient Israel, right? And so like as normative of that, this is not shocking to anyone. We constantly need to turn and return. This is part of this covenant concept that God has given us. And when we act within that covenant, we're going to be shoving and to shoving all the time. I just hacked that. Please know that was on purpose. I was not trying to be disrespectful to ancient Hebrew, which I don't know well. Okay. Now, sometimes that was on accident that you turned the wrong way. Sometimes it was by choice. Sometimes it was just by nature of being human. You touched a, a dead body because you had to tend to it, and now it was time to return to a state of cleanliness, right? So it, all of these ways, it was so normative, you guys. That's what I want us to hear. The constant need to turn and return was normative, and we had systems for that, and it was part of our life together. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Now, the word that we say is um, repent in the Greek, now getting to the New Testament, is metanoia, which is the name of this book. Metanoia. And now that one adds to the notion of the Old Testament turning and returning. Not only are we going to do that, yes, but and we are also being transformed in the process. This word metanoia is the one that Jesus used in Mark 1.15 in the beginning of his ministry after he was baptized. He said, the kingdom of God has, has come near. Repent, metanoia, believe the good news. This is not just turning or confessing so much more. It's turn and be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind all the time. This is an ongoing metanoia that is being in, invited into. So it's being transformed formed in the process. I love how Alan Hirsch actually breaks this down. He talks about, this is what I mean about brokenhearted, right? So the way that he brings it up is he talks about the whole heart as being a health integration of mind, soul, and will. So our heart, there's that Venn diagram. Oh, you already found it. This is probably a copyright infringement. And so since we're on Facebook, I'm going to say copyright Alan Hirsch. And I gave note of where I totally just took a photo of his page. But the idea is that the more that we're integrated, we're a whole heart. But if something has gone, look at, like, like think about the story of David. His will, like his, his mind and his soul were like really connected with the Lord, but man, his will went way haywire. He was not an integrated heart. He was a broken heart, a non-whole, non-integrated person. And so when this is not fractured or in alignment, we are a broken heart. Let me just read quickly some of Alan Hirsch's um, passages here. He'll do better than me. So here we go. Um, Richard Nabor observes the Christian responsibility to repent demands more than simply expressing feelings of regret for moral wrongdoing and a vague desire for reform. Rather, it involves the recognition and rejection of various false frameworks for understanding the world itself. So that means your mind and your will and your soul all need to be like, I need to be transformed in my whole framework here, right? So radical metanoia always brings with it a corresponding transformation. 
We tend to retreat from metanoia, imagining it to be a miserable process of highlighting our failures and shameful acts. But the process of metanoia allows us to see with fresh eyes the beauty waiting us if we turn towards God's reality. It's a transformation of our framework, of our mind, not only of our actions, of our will, but of our whole self. Jesus is bringing a wholehearted healing to what it is that it means when he says repent. It's beyond confession. And that is a part of that, but that's like one step, you guys, in what we're being invited into with metanoia. So back to understanding a little bit more about this repentance concept, because that's what David did, right? In Psalm 51, he was like, I own it. I did that thing. Heal me, help me, give me a new framework. Like, forgive me. Now, I want to give three observations from this story or this season in the life. And this is where we're going to, we're going to um, wrap up our time today. Three observations for us to understand and go deeper into the beauty of this concept of metanoia that it is that King David did in response to his um, bad choices. He made, I tell the pets, make good choices, and they don't. Um, he made bad choices. So um, observation number one. You guys, even when we've acknowledged what we've done, when we've confessed and repented and truly longed and had that transformation take place, I just need to give a warning. There are still natural consequences for our sins, even after we stand forgiven by God. And what I want to just point this out as is that what God sees after we have done this repentance, we are literally covered by the, the grace of Jesus. We are clothed in his own holiness and righteousness. We stand before the Father, holy, righteous, and redeemed, wrapped in the cloak of righteousness, that is Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's how God sees us. But we still live in the world in the wake of the decisions that we made along the way, and there are times that our human relationships will still feel fractures in the wake of our choices. That does not remove your forgiven status before the Lord. It's just a reality. And so one of the reasons I point this out is because we see this in the life of David. There still are strained relationships relationships that are going on, family dynamics that are messed up because of this. There still are uh, lack of trust issues because people saw what he did. That's just a natural consequence. You still can stand holy, righteous, and redeemed, but I believe that the enemy sometimes use those fractured places to make you feel like you don't stand forgiven in the wake does that make sense? So that, that's just a truth of being in relationship with people. Your forgiveness status by God hasn't changed. And part of the act of living out the natural consequences is something that we get to all do together in community as holy broken people and just love each other well while we stumble through it. Your forgiven status before the Lord has not changed a bit but there can be natural consequences to sin behavior. That's my first observation for us as we try to walk in our forgiven sta uh, standing. Second, I think it would have been really good if early in the story, somebody could have gone to David and told him a little piece of advice about keeping short accounts. This is what an old pastor, a wonderful pastor from my youth used to say, keep short accounts. He meant in relationships. I think that's also good. It's like, don't bring the stuff up way later. But with God, we also get to keep short accounts. Here's what I mean. God's mercy is new every morning when we are um, aware and doing this metanoia posture regularly. I think if somebody could have gone on early in the story of David and said, like, I'm seeing a snowball coming. Let's, like, back it up and not get to that whole list of everything. What if you had checked your heart at whatever that was that kept you back from the battlefield? 
would you have even gotten to the point where you were wandering around and having those lustful thoughts and committing adultery, which got you to deception, which got you to, or let's just get to the lust. Okay, like we had a, we had a moment. Let's, let's check our heart here so we don't get to the adultery. You see what I'm saying? Like keeping short accounts means that we can stop the snowball before we're all the way to the breadth of lack of integrity all the way to murder that ended up happening. But you have to keep short accounts. And if what I mean by that is that you have to be so aware day in and day out of with the state of your heart and your mind and your will and all of those things so that you can catch the thing before it just goes off the rails, if that makes sense. One really easy way, I mean, I think I'm seeing nodding, you guys get the concept of this. Don't, just stop the snowball by being alert. One great way to do this is something that um, the ancient church, well, not ancient, maybe, I don't know, is it ancient? St. Ignatius, is that ancient, Sam? I don't know. Okay, he says he doesn't know either. Um, St. Ignatius has the daily examine, and I put a QR code up here if you guys want something more official than what I'm about to say. But St. Ignatius came up with this idea that basically said, what if every day I ended by keeping short accounts, I'm paraphrasing for him, and I check my day every day. I check my heart and my actions every day so that every day I can go forward and my sin can be as far as the east is from the west. His mercies are new every morning because I'm keeping short accounts. I can put that day to rest and start fresh and new. So what do we need to do? The short version of this is start by becoming aware of God's presence. Review the day with gratitude. Go through the whole day. Just be like, hmm, how did that day go? What was that? And then you pay attention to emotions. If one stops, like I'm going through my day and then, oh, that wasn't so good. Like that's what you're doing. You're paying attention to your emotions. What's God saying through your emotions, including the uncomfortable ones? And then you choose a feature of the day and you pray into this. Maybe like this might become a prayer of intercession over something that really um, touched your heart. This might be a prayer of gratitude of something that was a blessing to your heart, or it may be a prayer of confession when you saw the yuck in your heart. And that's okay because you're catching that yuck before the snowball keeps going because you're doing this so regularly with the Lord. You're just laying your life out and you're saying, here it is. Can you help me fix it up today? Oh, and tomorrow gets to be a new day. So, and then you look forward to tomorrow. So that QR code leads you to something more official. I confess to you guys, I do my own version of a daily examine, but I don't do five steps. I just sit with a journal every single morning before I start my day to make sure I'm not starting the day with any junk from the day before. I'm not a night person. I'm a morning person. You do you. I just am saying like every day I need to sit and process with the Lord what the yuck was, what the good was. And there it gives you praise, gratitude, and a posture of easy confession to say. And then you may need to go from that spot and still um, confess and repent to a friend or seek restitution for what was wrong. Or you might be able to just check your heart attitude before the snowball comes. So that's all observation number two. Keep short accounts. But the third thing I want to observe is something that's interesting to me. David successfully stood in his forgiveness. And here's what I meant by that. He cried out to God, Psalm 51. He acknowledged his wrong. He asked for forgiveness and he received it. He received that forgiveness and he knew it. Pause. I think he knew it because he was living in the Old Testament systems and structures of covenant faithfulness, of turning and returning so normatively that it was a accepted thing that he could be standing holy, righteous, and redeemed and forgiven before God. Here's why I want to say that. Because he asked for forgiveness like that. He knew that the system worked. 
He lived it as a faithful Jew. And so he fasted and prayed for that child to live, and the child did not. And afterwards, he got up, he ate, he showered or bathed, and he... Um, he comforted his wife. He got up and he moved forward. And people were like, why are you doing that? And when I used to read that as a parent, I'd be like, that feels a little um, insensitive. And like, aren't you supposed to be sad now? But here's the deal. David knew I wanted that consequence to not come and it did. But now I can move forward knowing I stand forgiven before the Lord. And there may be consequences before me, but he did not need to look back and wonder his status before God. He could stand in his own forgiveness. I bring this up because I believe that often we are not as used to that Old Testament uh, pattern of this constant turning and returning. And so what happens to us is that we can say, Lord, I lay this before you at the foot of the cross. We get up from prayer and we've done all the things. We've done exactly what we're supposed to, but the enemy picks that up and he's like, you dropped this, take it back. This is still yours to carry with shame. The Lord didn't really forgive you for it. Put it back in your backpack. You carry that thing. And that's where we carry shame. When it comes to the concepts of repentance and confession, we don't think it frees us from shame. But Monsieur Day, it does. It frees us. That's the whole system at play. It is a returning, a reframing, and an actual changing of our integrated heart back to the way of God. And I'm here to tell you that when the enemy comes and says to put that rock back in your backpack, you say, thank you you know it's already been handed off and I will not take that back again. And you have the power in the name of Jesus to do that right to the enemy's face. I'm just telling you. So that's the third thing I want you to know. Yes, David stood in his forgiveness and we can look at him and say, why didn't you keep crying? But he was moving forward knowing he stood holy, righteous, and redeemed. Even with the mess of the story we just read, folks, if he does, then so do we. Whatever it is that lays behind you, you do not pick back up that rock again. You set it before the Lord and you stand in your status as forgiven people. Okay, and now I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you for the story of David. I thank you for when I see myself in his life, even if the exact circumstances are different, the feelings feel the same. I thank you for the Psalms and his words. I thank you that he sometimes can write something like Psalm 51 and I can use his words when I don't even have my words for the yuck that I find in my daily journaling. So God, God, I just praise you that you have given us a system where we literally can stand in the forgiveness that you have promised, you've given, and that because of Christ, where Christ is seated now, would we come before you and ask with metanoia, transformation, hopes that we would be forgiven, that you say, I see you now, holy, righteous, and redeemed, because in you I see my son who covers you in his love and his grace, in his very body and blood, so that you can stand before me in the beautiful way I designed you. We thank you, King Jesus. This was your good pleasure to have it this way. In your name, we continue to sing and pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.